Welcome to episode 23 of Batman Nightcast, the show that chronicles the comic book adventures of the Dark Knight detective in the era following the Crisis on Infinite Earths. I'm Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And this episode, dear listeners, is a game changer. Perhaps not quite epic, but it's pretty damn important for us regardless, as we are going to cover Batman issue 412, which is the final issue in the beloved Max Allen Collins run. Yay! (laughs) And then we're going to cover Detective Comics 579, which is the series debut for artist Norm Brayfog... Sorry, I'm sorry, I, I said his name wrong. Norm frickin' Brayfogel. Woohoo! Needless to say, we have been itching to get to this episode for a couple of reasons. Is that right, Chris? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> for multiple reasons, yes. <laughs> <laughs> In one of our Fire and Water group chats... Uh, Zoom Yukonori reminded me that I I think in the past we've missed an opportunity to brand Max Allen Collins as like something because like a lot of because of his name and everything like a lot of times in our notes or in listener feedback a lot of people just refer to him as M-A-C just by his initials and I think we could have like branded him like the notorious M-A-C or something like that we could have given him like that kind of like as a nickname if only so that like every time I mention him I could use like the sound drop return of the mac (laughs) yes and now this is probably the last time we'll get to do that so (laughs) um but yeah and then uh, so we're like i said we're gonna cover his last story and then after that we're gonna get to the first detective issue with norm brayfogel i i i'm sure of the two of those things hmm of the two of those things, which are we more excited for? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'll be honestly. <laughs> Good riddance to somebody who wore out his welcome, and hello to somebody that we've been racing to get to. It's a little bit tough, but anyway, before we get to either of those things, we have a little bit of a, a pause before we get to this stuff, because let's talk about what else was on the spinner rack for that month. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the books with the October 1987 cover date. So, coming in from uh, DC Comics, what maybe is the... <laughs> I was like, this, there, there were a couple of Action Comics books from this one. Um, <laughs> Action Comics Annual Number 1, which you and Cindy covered uh, on, on Superman. There was it? No, it was one of your House of Frankenstein episodes, right? Right. Yes, yes. That's one of my favorites. Uh, that's the Skeeter Issue yeah. by J- John Byrne and Art Adams, which is a fantastic, yeah, yeah. fantastic the, for, comic. The first, well, not the first because uh, because of the Man of Steel miniseries, but after that, the first real Superman and Batman team-up of the post-crisis era. Yes. Um, what about the main Action Comics issue from that month, 593? <laughs> Anything noteworthy about that one? Well, that would be the uh, conclusion of Superman and Bart make a porno. <laughs> uh, and I'm sorry, they at least made a softcore uh, porno that the kind that Rob would have on film and water at least. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, guys. Reread the books. It happened. I'm you know I, you can say it didn't, but you can go la 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 la. But just reread the books and, and blame it on John Byrne. I don't yeah. I don't know why the man you, was. You can find it in the shelves wherever, like right next to the Tracy Lords video. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh yeah, that's a that's a legendary legendary comic there. Mm. <laughs> uh, a few other DC books that I just want to mention in really quick succession: Doom Patrol issue one. Um, this mm. is the new series, the Paul Kupperberg and Steve Lytle one. Uh, Longbow Hunters issue three, the conclusion of that miniseries that sort of reinvented Green Arrow for the post crisis era. Watchmen number twelve finally came out. Um, and for me, Secret Origins number 19, which I covered long, long, long time ago on the Secret Origins podcast. Uh, this was the one that covered Uncle Sam, which I did with Jeff Nettleton, and the Guardian of Newsboy Legion fame with Michael Bailey. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. One that jumped out at me was uh, in, in marital infidelity was rampant at D.C. because <laughs> we had Flash number five. Uh, with Wally hooking up with a much older and married Tina McGee. Uh, and uh, then the Superman 4 movie special, one of the few times that a comic adaptation is actually better than the movie. Ah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Take your uh, word yeah. for it. Okay. <laughs> Stop texting me. Sorry, I keep getting... I, I saw I heard that. <laughs> Over on the Marvel side of things, the uh, pretty infamous story Craven's Last Hunt began in Web of Spider-Man 31, Amazing Spider-Man 293, and Spectacular Spider-Man 131. All three of those issues hit this month, which is the first half of Craven's Last Hunt, which, where did I just hear? Was it? I think Andy Leyland mentioned kind of in passing on a podcast that that was originally conceived as a Batman story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd, I'd yeah. never heard of that before, but like after thinking about it, I was like, oh, I can totally see that. Yeah, it actually makes more sense as a Batman story. It kinda, it's, yeah, it kind of does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dark, <laughs> obviously, yeah. I wonder if Demetrius had been thinking like of using an existing villain or creating like an all-new one. Because, I mean, it seems like it would have been something for a Bane type of character, the way Craven is used in that one. I mean, in fact, I mean, you can look at a lot of parallels of what they end up doing in Nightfall with, from Craven's Last Hunt, but... I wonder if he was going to do something like that, or like a KG Beast type of guy, or if there was another type of villain that they already had. Catman? I, I don't, like... I can't remember if he ever said who the villain was. I've, I've read that before, too, but it's been so long, and I don't even remember where it was. So, that's a good question. I, I'm sure our listeners are probably like, yeah, hey, it was this guy, you know, so let us know if you know who it is. Or if if he's never said it, if, they, if that's sort of inconclusive, if you have an idea of what sort of villain it might, it, it could have been, like, could it have been somebody like Deadshot or, or somebody else in that vein or somebody who has that kind of, you know, hunter-stalker motif who, who would have thought that they could do Batman better than that? <laughs> Professor Strange. Ugh. Oh, yeah, there you go. Hugo <laughs> Strange. Yeah, that could have been him. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one that jumped out at me was uh, Captain America number 334. That introduces John Walker as the new Captain America mm-hmm. after the previous issue where they found him. And uh, he gets a new Bucky who was an adult African-American male. And there was quickly a name change because apparently Mark Grunewald, the writer, discovered that that was a racial slur in some areas of the country for African-Americans. So uh, that's why he became Battlestar rather quickly, which I had no idea about that either. But it was kind of weird seeing a grown man in a Bucky costume. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But that was a good – that's a good run of comics right there. I mean it's – you know, that's Nightfall version one, really. <laughs> yeah, it's another sort of beta test for, for the Nightfall saga, yeah, yeah. Actually, I just read that run of Captain America earlier, oh god, no, now six months ago. Mm, on the Marvel Unlimited app? Yep, yeah, which yeah, uh, yeah. it's just been my, my steady diet, so. Cool. 
last thing from Marvel that I wanted to show um, Ohatmu I almost said Ohatmu or not um, <laughs> but, um, the official handbook of the Marvel uh, Universe Deluxe issue 18 which was the Book of the Dead um, mm. I, was, I always just love that they just brand it, branded it that way it's like you're a bunch of characters who died before and we're, we're giving them the entries but it's called the Book of the Dead yeah, I love it. The, the, the covers with the, the cemetery with all their ghosts coming out of the graves. <laughs> it's so weird if you think about it, but it's – I love those. It's like, oh, oh yeah. this guy's dead? Really? <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, oh, also from DC, I just noticed the, the Phantom Stranger miniseries, the four-issue one by uh, Mike Mignola. Uh, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, that's the one that uh, I flipped through at a, uh, at a convenience store in town and – uh, put it back, and uh, this lady yelled at me for manhandling comics, even though I didn't, and made me buy it. And I come home and told my mom, and then my mom got all red, went down there, and yelled at the woman and got my money back. So I always remember that comic for that reason. <laughs> Go, mom. <laughs> It'd be funny if you ended up like returning it and getting your money back or something, and then like you know, thirty years later, it turns out that that book is worth like seven hundred dollars. Right? Yeah, it's like it's like a Spider Amazing Spider Man number three hundred and something. Yeah. yeah. All right. Anything else before we go? I think that's it. All right. Cool, uh, folks. We're going to take a short promo break right now, but when we come back, we will have Batman four hundred and twelve. Don't go away. In nineteen thirty nine. Bob Kane and Bill Finger created a shadowy crime fighter steeped in the pulps and crime dramas of the time. That character was Batman. Over the next 80 years, Batman not only became one of the most popular comic book characters of all time, but also became a television and movie phenomenon, appearing in both live-action and animated projects. And then there are the plethora of video games, trading cards, action figures, and statues that have been made of him and his cast of characters. Because of this, Mike and I want to spend the next year celebrating his 80th birthday. And we're calling that celebration the Overlooked Dark Knight Celebration of Batman's 80th Birthday. Yes. But really? Really? That That's the best name that you could come up with. You've written panels, dude, and that's the best thing you could come up with. It's accurate yeah but you know you and i have been podcasting a long time now that was the placeholder name we can do better than that okay what's your idea well what did we call it in the first episode of this series that we've already recorded i I really have no idea it's a miracle that i remember what books we talked about well that's fair because i don't remember that either anyway andy and i are going to be spending may 2019 to may 2020 talking about batman stories from all eras that we feel are either overlooked or too awesome not to talk about. We're even going to have special episodes dedicated to things like the 1989 Batman film and what issues of Detective Comics we would include in a big hardcover collection. Episodes will drop twice a month. You sure about that? To the best of my ability, episodes will drop twice a month at www.fortressofbailytude.com. You can also find the show on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. The Overlooked Dark Knight's celebration of Batman's 80th birthday. Because everyone is doing it, but we're doing it for a whole year. The Overlooked Dark Knight is part of the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcasting network. All right, reserve. Reserved.
Batman 412 has an October 1987 cover date, but the issue arrived on the stands July 7th that year, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover by Kevin Nolan shows a close-up of the Dark Knight being strangled from behind by a woman wearing white face paint and red hearts on her cheeks. The woman has a black mohawk and a spiked collar around her neck. The text blister on the side reads, Introducing the Mime. What do you think of this cover? I like this cover. I think it grabs you because of the extreme close-up. And I like Kevin Nolan stuff. He tends to draw a lot of dead-eyed people, though. But this this really works with the expression of the mime. It's it's she's got this really kind of demented look on her face because she's got such little tiny pupils, mm-hmm. and it's it's so weird. And you can just see like the whites of her eyes. Uh, it's interesting that we see Batman's white eyes that his eye slits squint. So I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> But it looks okay visually. I don't know what else you would have done with that. So, you know, what do you think about it? Pretty much the same. I mean, I, I like this cover. I think it, it just everything you said, like the, the extreme close-up and everything, the action shot, it kind of works. She has a striking image. So, like, right away you kind of like look at it, like, who is this? I mean, gosh, how many times have we said, like, it's like it, it feels like this era they kept introducing proto-Harley Quinn type of characters. <laughs> yeah. it's like they just kept on working until they until they cracked the code. And interestingly, when they actually created Harley Quinn and the, for the animated series, she looked nothing like this. She had nothing like this. But it seems like they've sort of evolved her and and more of the the uh, iconography and, and the look that she's taken on seems more to remind me of the mime and... Um, who from the Legends crossover, and I can't think of her name now, the bird. Oh, Magpie. Magpie, thank you. Yeah. Um, and there was even in the actual Legends miniseries, there was another Joker uh, hanger on who had that kind of that kind of gimmick. So, yeah, like the, this sort of like punk girl with like stage makeup, but like the sort of like extreme type of type of look. Um, this is where Harley Quinn has been going all this time. And, but they already had her way back when, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I just will say one more thing. I wish the inside of the book looked like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get, let's get into it. <laughs> the last Max Allen Collins story in this run is titled The Sound of Silence and features the same creative team as last issue, Dave Cockrum on pencils, Don Heck on inks, Augustin Moss letters, Adrian Roy colors, and Denny O'Neill playing the part of editor... After a long night on patrol, Batman and Robin swing by St. Martin's Cathedral to listen to the bells chime 6 o'clock in the morning, a weekly ritual for the dynamic duo. Only this particular Sunday morning, the bell doesn't chime. Upon investigation, Robin discovers that the bell's clapper has been stolen. Commissioner Gordon informs the heroes that identical acts of vandalism have been committed on churches and bell towers all over the city. That night, as the theater district lets out, a mime disrupts traffic to perform in the street. The mime's face is as I described on the cover. Her costume is skin-tight purple and black number, and her cleavage covered up by what must be noted is a fishnets pattern. (laughs) Sorry, I had to. Uh, (laughs) Some spectators show appreciation for the mime's performance, some not so much. A cab driver, angry at the traffic congestion, lays on the horn and hurls angry insults at the woman. So the mime walks up to his car, draws a silenced pistol from her bag, and fires two shots through the windshield. The crowd of onlookers scream in terror, drawing the attention of Batman and Robin, who were patrolling nearby. 
Batman leaves Robin to tend to the wounded cab driver while he chases the mime into the park. He knocks her down with a batarang, but she manages to stun Batman with a joy buzzer that delivers 10,000 volts of electricity through his glove. The mime escapes. Gordon calls the cab driver in to pick the mime out of a lineup of mimes and clowns, but the driver doesn't ID anybody from the group. Later, Bruce Wayne pays a visit to Vicki Vale to find information on a famous mime from the Gotham theater scene, a woman named Camilla Cameo, who apprenticed under Marcel Marceau. Bruce then reports back to Jason the backstory of Camilla Cameo, whose father ran a noisy fireworks business. Camilla hated the raucous sounds of the fireworks, and all the more after her parents were killed in an explosion at the fireworks factory. She took comfort in silence and studied the art of mime, mastering it while touring overseas. She returned to Gotham to lead a mime troupe on stage, but the audiences dried up and her show was cancelled. After that, Camilla Cameo vanished, but Bruce believes she is the mime who silenced the church bells and shot the cab driver. Batman predicts the mime's next target, a concert by the heavy metal rock band Blister Twister at the Gotham Civic Center. The mime sneaks backstage and shuts down the power to the instruments. She electrocutes the crew and the band members and begins performing her mime show on the stage, until Batman arrives. She tries to shock him again, but he's insulated his suit. She draws her gun, but he kicks it out of her hand. She picks up a guitar, ready to club him with it, but Robin throws the power switch, and the resulting audio feedback causes her to double over in pain. Later, Blister Twister resumes their concert, playing a metal version of Simon and Garfunkel, while the mime is taken away by the police, who inform her of her right to remain silent. And that was Batman 412. So, Chris, what did you think? Oh, not to beat a dead horse, but this is Batman the Coloring Book again. Uh... In my opinion, the story is bland, and I hate to say it. The art is very uninspired. Where is Dave Cockrum? I I know we brought this up last time. He had health problems later in life, and this might be a result of that. But this is just – it's so phoned in. It's just – I don't want to just be negative, negative, negative. But do you have anything positive to say? What do you think about it? Well, so here's the thing. And I don't know if I've just been – beaten down and and I can't really see these objectively anymore but maybe this is the best notorious MAC story (laughs) damning with faint praise (laughs) yeah I mean I I think probably I mean uh, yeah it's not the best because we still give that credit to the penguin story from the annual that had the Norm Breifogel art that's better Mm -hmm. but I didn't have a problem with this story I thought it was very Again, going with a lot of what we've said about some of his stories, it's very old-fashioned, but I didn't find the characters acting inconsistently. I, I didn't think that... I mean, it was just... It was very juvenile. Like you said, Like it was... It, the art kind of... would You'd think this would be like a, a young reader's or like a first-step reader's or, or coloring book type of Batman story. And the story seems to kind of fit that, too. It's not very complicated. We don't get a lot of complex characterization. It's it's pretty rote. But it's also inoffensive. Like, it, it, like nothing about the story just bothered me. It was just kind of like, all right, I, I don't know if this deserved to be in the, you know, Batman comic book, but it was fine. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think part of it, 
I think this is one of those cases where if you put Norm Brayfogle on this uh, or an artist like him or Alan Davis, I think that this would have elevated this story. It's yeah. not – there's nothing in it that, like you said, that's like overly bad. I mean the, the mime's motivations are a little – wonky but i mean you could you, you honestly could look at some of the classic batman villains and say well what you know their motivation's a little wonky too yeah, i mean you know but, like silence i definitely think like <laughs> with with not a lot but just a little bit of tweaking to this character she could be really interesting i think like this the mime could be brought back and could have been like a staple villain for this era like sort of um like in the the jeff johns run on the flash he created that serial killer murmur who like sewed his mm-hmm. lips shut or something like that she could be like a dark twisted character like that but even like even not that extreme but just somebody like obsessed with silence maybe she has like a, a an ear condition where every sound is painful to her or something like that um right yeah and just like using a, like a silence weapon or you know silencing things like that like I think she had the potential to be a cool villain if they ever but yeah like the backstory is just really simple like her dad worked at a fireworks factory and she didn't like that and then the fireworks killed them so she blames them. so she doesn't like sound like but it's okay you could it could be deeper than that but visually and gimmick wise I think the mime has a lot of potential yeah, I mean, I think so too. I think I think under different hands, and I think the artwork too falls down because I think I think the look of her on the cover by Nolan shows that she has visual potential as well. I mean, to be a striking character, but it's like the artwork doesn't match the type of character that she's drawn as. You know, the costume design. I don't know who designed the costume. I don't know if Dave Cockrum designed the costume because Dave Cockrum's a fantastic costume designer from the Legion and the X-Men and, and everything. But I, I just I I just I'd so let down by the art. It's really strange. It's 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 but yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there was some potential there. If they and I know and, and I don't think they would have went as dark as they would have under, you know, Jeff Johns, like you said, with Murmur or something. They didn't have to go that dark, but just a little, a little more depth to the character. There's, there's something there, and I, I think a different art team might have brought a little bit of that forward here mm. too. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would say Cockrum designed the costume too. Something about like like the leotard and everything, and like the. Um I mean, it's hard to tell if they're boots because they're colored the same way. But if it was like like the thigh high boots and everything like that, it it doesn't look too dissimilar from some of the costumes he did for the X Men characters or plus fishnets. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, like I mean, otherwise, like there there are inconsistencies. Like the opening splash page, it's it's a cute little. I mean, it seems like a very Silver Age kind of old fashioned type of thing of Batman and Robin swinging in. But if you notice, like what is the panel? The caption actually. Uh, and Saturday night is the longest and wildest, the most event, the most eventful. So as dark night gives way to morning light, as Saturday blurs into Sunday, Batman and Robin, weary from the wars, head home. Does Robin look weary in that? <laughs> no, he's got a big grin on his face. He's got a big old grin, smile on his face. Like, yeah, I love this. Like, I don't think they look very weary. Like they're really tired from the battle. So. <laughs> I will. I do like the bit that Batman stops. And listens to the bells. I thought that was a neat, a neat little touch, you know. And I mean, you could say, well, maybe that's because, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents went to church. You know, I mean, there's been different stories where they've kind of alluded to that maybe they were Catholic, um, you know. So maybe that's it. Or you know, even if they weren't Catholic, they went to a large church that had bells. And mm-hmm. and I do like that 
Robin says something about I didn't I didn't know you were religious or something and Batman's like it's been said I have an Old Testament outlook you know <laughs> I mean I like that line that's a good line you know I, I mean that's that's the more that's what we need Mac come on you know we need stuff like that's what we needed in this run you know, well, these- and you know what I I give credit to him there he has one other line in the story that I really liked and I almost got a genuine laugh out loud for me after the mime escapes when they do the uh, police lineup when they bring the cabbie in to identify and he's got just a long row of like clowns and mimes and everything and after the line of it cuts back to Gordon and Batman in Gordon's office and Batman sitting on the couch and Gordon just looks exasperated and he's like easily the most idiotic lineup in history <laughs> like, yeah well done that, that, that line actually worked that was a good a nice little bit of humor injected in the story when it could have used it so yeah he pointed out how absurd all this is you know so right. yeah I like that yeah. this story didn't break any character it didn't make batman look stupid or foolish it didn't ruin the origin of anybody like that it was fine it was kind of overly simplistic and the art more so to the fact that it felt like kind of like a not ready for prime time batman story um these don't feel like appropriate follow-ups to year one is the thing like when we just had year one sort of be like the new the new origin, the new status for what post-crisis Batman is, to follow it up with this run by the notorious MAC. It's really inappropriate. It's really discordant. It's It doesn't work. Uh, and, and some of the stories were just genuinely bad. And even a story like this, which I think is just fine, it's like, why are you doing this? Like, who, like, again, Denny, what were you thinking? Yeah, it's it's so, and it's so strange to think that the art and the story, I mean, like we said, the story could have been elevated by the art, but just there's so many artists out there who probably would have like died to work on Batman at this point, especially with the heat from the Dark Knight Returns and, and Batman Year One. And then, but yet the inside of Batman's actual comic book looks like this, you know? It's, and I mean, I don't mean to like, like smear the legacy of Dave Cockrum, who's a fantastic artist. I just, right. I really don't understand what's inside this comic book and why Dave Cockrum's name's on it. I mean, it, it looks like Don Heck, late Don Heck, drew this himself. I mean, where's I don't even see Dave Cockrum in it, honestly. So it's, and we talked about that last time, but it seems even more so in this issue. And there's, there's just some weird staging, like there's no dialogue there. I mean, I know it's supposed to be silent because she's up there on the stage performing, but it's like, with no dialogue, you really needed some dramatic artwork at the end where Batman comes into the stage. And it's just even that with Batman swooping in onto the stage, everything's so empty and open. It's just mm-hmm. – it's not visually striking. It just mm-hmm. – you know, the the visuals aren't selling that part of the story when it has to go silent to fit the character's whole, you know, modus operandi. You know, yeah. so <laughs> – uh, it's not like the silent issue of G.I. Joe, you know, like, uh, right. one of those. Or that's We need Larry Hama here to draw <laughs> this, I guess. Snake Eyes versus the Mime. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> um, do you have anything else to say about this specific issue? I just, you know, I thought Blister Twister uh, is was kind of interesting. It looked like Twisted Sister's logo. Um uh, is obviously a takeoff on Twisted Sister combined with Kiss. Right. Uh, by 1987, I don't know if either of those bands were all that relevant. <laughs> um, I, maybe that's around the time D. Snyder was ticking off Tipper Gore at those, <laughs> um, you know, music censorship hearings. But 
that's that's about it. But I I thought that was kind of interesting, and you know the fact that they did a a heavy metal version of the Sound of Silence was kind of right. right. <laughs> Hello, Doctor Smile, friend. You know, so like, <laughs> just like. <laughs> I'd like to hear that. Somebody's probably already done it. There's probably like a black flag version of. Uh, sure. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we leave, <laughs> return of the Mac. Before we leave, Max, for the last time, um, there's an interview that we have been sitting on for a long time. And I'm almost embarrassed. To, um, way back on September eighth, two thousand seventeen, um, oh. one of our friends and listeners, friend of the network, Scott X. He sent us an article from Amazing Heroes issue 119. Uh, this was the June 15th, 1987 issue. And it's, it's an interview with Max Allen Collins discussing his, his time on the book and everything like that. Uh, so I just want to kind of go through this interview and just kind of hit some of the points that he brings up because it was an interesting read. And again, we've, we've had this thing for almost two years that we've just been kind of like thinking about as we've gone through these stories. And like, ah, when are we going to talk about it? Let's wait till the end of this run. So Collins, he discusses where he's at professionally at this time. His contract on the Dick Tracy strip was about to expire. He didn't know if he was going to be asked back to that. So he took on a bunch of other jobs, you know, writing comics, including the Batman. Uh, and it took a lot of his time and focus that he kind of admits that he wasn't really ready for. So he sort of, he wasn't jonesing to write the Batman comic, but he was given the offer and he took it just because he was a writer in need of work, which... Which can tell you, I mean, that that happens. That's that's part of the profession. This interview was conducted after Collins had left the book. He says he wrote nine scripts and arranged with Denny O'Neill to do a four-issue miniseries the following year. Only eight issues with his name came out, and no mini. Um, So I I should tell you something. (laughs) Uh, He complains about the artists he was saddled with. Yeah, yeah, he really does. Um, Chris Warner couldn't make the deadlines, so he had fill-ins. He actually he doesn't really mention the two stories that he did before year one. No. Um, when he refers to his run, he's really talking about the issues after year one. Almost kind of like he forgot, like he didn't remember that he wrote those. Um, <laughs> maybe the contract was different or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, he he mentions up front that you know he, he Chris Warner was signed on to be the artist for his run, and then he couldn't make the deadline, so they had these fill-ins. Well, so kind of getting into the the Dave Cockrum of it all. Collins complained that he wanted to write full script, but Dave Cockrum was only comfortable with the Marvel style, um, mm-hmm. which was that basically Collins would give him the, the general plot, the general outline of the story, um, whether it's kind of like abstract or pretty detailed, but Cockrum would lay it out the way he envisioned it and sort of like set the, the tone and set the pacing and all of that with his art. And then it was up to Collins on the back end to fill in the dialogue and make the picture kind of flow into this coherent story. And that was not something that Collins was comfortable with, but Denny O'Neill pressured him to adapt to Cockrum's style rather than the other way. Uh, It could just be because Denny knew Cockrum and and he was comfortable with that. It could just be, again, if if Cockrum was the only guy that they could come in to do these issues on, on short notice... But, yeah, Collins, at one point in this interview, he actually, he's quoted as saying, I have felt that in general I have turned in first-rate scripts and they have been made to look mediocre. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He also, he, he challenges people to read his scripts without the art and decide if they're good. Um, 
based on just his his that quote, um, I do agree that his issues looked mediocre. I think we both agree on that. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, these do not look like good, dynamic, or interesting stories. Whether or not they are first rate, uh, no, uh, they certainly don't come off that way. Far from it. No, no. But but now, like based on show, like I. I wonder if, like, I, if you saw, like, a first draft script of one of these issues or something like that, like, if it would read better? I, I can't imagine they would be that different. Can you? No, I, I I know he said that there were some captions taken away and added. I mean, like, no, I know he said that he had pitched the Robin origin story as a separate mini, like, branded as Robin Year One. And uh, he had some captions, some like, you know, once upon a time there was a, a dark knight had a squire named Dick Grayson and their enemy was a jester, you know, or or something like something along those lines. And that was taken out of the, the beginning of uh, Batman number, was that 40, was that 409 or 408? 408. 408, yeah. So Batman 408. So, you know, because we start media res with Batman and Robin on Batman and Dick as Robin on the rooftop with Joker. And he said, you know, basically, you know, that change that, you know, people, he said, in comic shops will say, well, who, which Robin is this and what year is this? And I guess he pitched like, you know, Jason Todd year one, basically, is what it amounts to. And, you know, he he felt like because they didn't go for that, that kind of neutered his stories, too. So I I still don't see them being that much better but i mean he's saying there was a certain amount of editorial interference with the actual scripts mm-hmm. so i mean I, I i don't know you know how much how much is different from the script to the comic you'd have to read it to see you know it's right. uh, he hints at it there being changes made and I, but i can't see them making that much of a difference honestly though yeah i and i agree and he he definitely he makes it sound like there there was there are things that he wanted to do that the that denny o'neill wouldn't let him and he he mentioned yeah he's he's angry that that caption was taken out that once upon a time in the kingdom of gotham there dwelt a dark knight whose squire was dick grayson and whose nemesis was a jester he thought that that line would have set would have established clearly that in the beginning of 408 it's it's Dick Grayson, and we know who he is, and then he's taken off the board, and then we get this new this new apprentice, Robin, and everything. And he said, he confronted, he asked Daniel O'Neill why he cut it from the book, and then he claimed not to remember. I think he just cut it because it's not good. It's, it's just, <laughs> I don't think it's a really good line. That wasn't even the problem. The problem people have with that issue, we all knew that was Dick Grayson. We got it. You know right, I mean? Right. I mean, you, you immediately get that that's Dick, like, within, like, the first page, that that's not Jason, it's Dick. Right. Yeah, and, dialogue is clear on that, yeah. Yeah, it's it, the the fact that that he had Batman just fire nineteen year old Dick Grayson and then right. pick up an untrained yeah. thirteen year old to replace him within like six months. That's the problem. Right. <laughs> I mean, he's self aware enough. He he knows and he recognizes that Denny was disappointed in his work and didn't like a lot of his like choices and a lot of the things he's. It basically says like Den, you know Denny hired him and then probably had some buyer's remorse like. Yeah, like Collins is definitely like aware that yeah this was not a good fit and and the editor knew that so um, mm-hmm. he takes shots at pretty much everybody except for Miller and Mazzuchelli. Um and he kind of makes it sound like those are the only serious Batman creators 
like in history, and everyone else is a hack, including the editors. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I noticed that, and he. I thought it was funny because he said, you know, apparently that people were intimidated to follow Miller. He said, "Well, I didn't. Th- I wasn't intimidated. I figured we had a captive audience, and you know, I, I'm going to write in, turn in these first-rate scripts, and and it'll be great. You know, which it's like eh, that's <laughs> that, that might be part of the problem too. You might have should have been a little intimidated. Yeah. By <laughs> up your game a little bit. Right. <laughs> Take it a little bit more seriously, but but yeah, he complains that people didn't get his humor. Um, he says there was a reason why that TV show was played for laughs, and that is because when you put an actual human being in those costumes and act out those stories, they look stupid. They betray their juvenile roots. It can't be done straight. I defy them to do the movie straight, which he's referring to <laughs> the long and gestation Batman movie, which, I don't know, how do you think the 1989 Batman movie pulled it off? <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I I think the movie sold the the Batman character. You know, I certainly felt like at the time that the movie was, you know, oh man, this is dark and serious, and this is this is exactly the type of Batman I want to see. Finally, as much as I still love the TV show, I mean, I was at the time I was very happy to see it. You know, and and of course the Joker still interjected a lot of humor and and everything. Of course, now I look back at that movie after the Nolan films and BVS and all that. And um, I look at that movie as being not too much darker than <laughs> Adam West in some ways. Right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. He, he's complaining that the company and editorial head, like, and he, he kind of makes it sound like everybody has this like gunshot. They're f- afraid of the legacy of Batman after the TV show, and and maybe there was some truth to that. I, I can't really remember now, but he's like they were averse to anything humorous or anything that was kind of like light spirited. Because he's like the, the mantra was like you know we write comics but we're serious people and well well that didn't come across in your style if like were you trying to adapt to that or were you trying to rebel against that because neither of them really comes across but right yeah and I mean I I definitely think that back then there was a the the that that's that's part of the problem with the Adam West series it's starting to kind of finally go away. Because we've been in this golden age of comic books being appreciated by mass audiences for for more of a you know a serious form of lack of a better term a, a serious form of of entertainment. But I mean, for years, you know, every if there was an article about a comic book, it was all pow zap or holy this or holy that in the article title, you know, in a newspaper, in a magazine, on TV, and uh, a lot of people. You know that were fighting to get comics taken seriously. They looked at the Adam West show, and because of that, the character of Batman as being this you know embarrassing uncle who's over in the corner doing the Batusi. You know, uh, so I mean, I, I kind of get what he's saying. He's not. I mean, being a fan back then, you did see that a lot. You know, a lot of a lot of comic creators were really you know pushing for comics to be accepted as a true art form. And then, you know, it's like, well, what about the Batman TV show? It's still airing, you know, four times a day on right. a syndicated channel. And it's, you know, and they're like, no, don't pay attention to that. Don't look at that anymore. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but what we've, what's, what's interesting is we've talked about the, at the same time, you know, the bar Davis runs going on and that has very much a feel of the, the TV show because that, the TV show felt like the golden age, early Silver Age comics. And so it would work if you knew how to work it, Max. (laughs) (laughs) That's just my thought on it anyway. (laughs) But again, I mean, Barr was familiar with the character. He had a history in in comics and DC. So, you know, he was coming and doing his own thing. Maybe he just didn't 
And maybe Collins, for his part, like thought that, I don't know, it kind of makes it sound like Batman should have begun and ended with Batman Year One and stuff like that. And that was like what he was, uh, I, I don't know. He comes off as very arrogant in this interview. He blames everybody else. He he only takes blame onto himself in as much as he's like, this was a bad fit. Like, they hired me, but they didn't really want my style. It was just, it was a bad fit. They didn't like what I was giving them, so... He complains about the artists, he complains about the editors, just like the whole kind of like system and everything. It's it's not a good look. And if this was, if he had turned in actual first-rate issues, and if you could tell from the script and from the dialogue and the storytelling that these were these were good books that were just let down by mediocre art, I would be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And, and we might have seen his name later on. He might have come back for other things, but it looks like... Uh, I don't know if he he burned his bridges or if they were just like no the, we don't we're not happy with this yeah um, but yeah it, like I, I don't think the quality of his work supports any right of his to be arrogant and to and to point fingers at other people so no I, I really don't either I mean I I think if he'd had a different art team an exciting artist like Norm Brayfogle or maybe even Alan Davis I think a lot of people would have looked past the stories and said man that was some great art mm-hmm. but I think if they would have still said yeah the stories weren't all that great but the art was really great you know um, and I do remember several times in later years Denny O'Neill when they when they would interview him on his reign as Batman editor which is like 15 16 years or however long it was um, he would say, well, you know, we got off to a little bit of a rough start and, and he would, he would put the blame on himself to a point. He'd say, you know, I, you know, I basically tried to, uh, get a writer to do Batman who really didn't know the character and I thought it would be a great fit and it wasn't. So he puts as much of that blame on himself, but he's definitely referring to Max Allen Collins. And he, you know, he talks about how the foundation was weak. Usually it comes up when, uh, the story of Jason, you know. Uh, what happened with, you know, Jason? Because then, you know, he gets pulled into the whole, well, you had the whole uh, 900 number call in. And he starts, well, you know, uh, you know, and then he gets into that whole, well, this is what my thinking was. And he goes back to, you know, we had to do something with this character because I hired a writer that wasn't a good fit for the book. And that was my fault. And because, you know, I tried, it basically like Denny, like really like courted him to come write Batman, hmm. you know. So, I mean, he does take some of the blame for it later on, but it, it also probably doesn't make Collins feel too well if he read that and see that, wow, I really am the, <laughs> the black mark on, on on Batman in this era, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so. But anyway, that's all I got for this issue. That's all I got for, for Mac himself. So I think we can probably put this one to bed and say goodbye. Goodbye, Mac. It's... <laughs> I would say it's been fun, but it's <laughs> I'd be lying. <laughs> it's been something. It's been something, yeah. So, uh, folks, we're going to take another promo break, but when we come back, something a little bit better. <laughs> For years, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man. From giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests. From massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures. From romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as MASH, Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited. And there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? 
Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay, we're back, and as customary, when we have a new artist on the Batman series, we like to do an artist spotlight. And this time, the bat signal shines on Norm frickin' Brayfogle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Norm Brayfogle contributed to the Batman series far earlier than most realize. In 1977, his submission of a new costume for Robin was run along with a few others in Batman Family Number 13. Of course, none of those costumes were picked because back then DC's like, we can't change that. He's on licensing. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, before that, uh, Norm Brayfogle was born in Iowa, and his family moved to Michigan while he was young. He graduated with an art degree from Northern Michigan University, and he entered the field of illustration and graphic design. He illustrated a children's book on Paul Bunyan, and after moving to California, drew illustrations for a space shuttle manual – for United Space Boosters. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I did not either. It's like, well, there you go. That's very interesting. He broke into comics with DC's tryout title, New Talent Showcase, in 1984, appearing in issues 11, 13, and 18. He also drew a story for Legion of Superheroes number 24 in 1985 before beginning a stint at First Comics drawing American Flag and Whisper. Along the way, he both wrote and drew a Captain America story for Marvel fanfare that he had conceptualized as a Batman tale before, so much like Craven's Last Hunt, and it was changed into a Captain America story. <laughs> uh, so, so there you go. <laughs> uh, Bray Fogle debuted on Batman with Batman Annual Number 11, where Robin is reading a copy of Whisper, we pointed out when we covered that issue, yep. and then Detective Comics Number 579, which we are about to cover in this episode. He began his long stint as one of the character's primary artists with issue number 582, January 1988. He was joined by writers John Wagner and Alan Grant the very next issue, and a classic run began. Although Wagner would eventually leave the title, and according to some interviews, Grant said Wagner basically never really wrote anything. He just was his partner, and they just that's how they signed things, was Grant and Wagner. 
Grant and Brayfogle stayed together through nearly every issue of Detective up through number 621, September 1990. Along the way, recurring villains the Ventriloquist, Scarface, Anarchy, and the Ratcatcher were introduced. Grant and Brayfogle moved over to the Batman title proper with issue number 455, October 1990, and stayed the primary team on that title through number 476, April 1992. During this period, they helped usher in Tim Drake officially as Robin, and Bray Fogel was the first to draw Tim in his Neil Adams design costume in story. In 1991, Bray Fogel provided the art for the first official book in DC's popular Elseworlds line, Batman Holy Terror, written by classic Batman scribe and author Alan Brenner. The popularity of Grant and Bray Fogel's more psychologically bent tales led to the team being awarded their own Batman title, Batman Shadow of the Bat, with a June cover date in 1992. There, they continued to introduce characters who stuck in the Batman canon, such as Mr. Zaz, Jeremiah Arkham, and Amygdala. I always have to stop and think how you say that. <laughs> I always want to say Amy Degala or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in 1993, Bray Fogel provided the fully painted art for Denny O'Neill's Birth of the Demon graphic novel, telling the origin of Ra's al Ghul for the first time. Bray Fogel illustrated a few of the opening chapters of the massive Nightfall storyline across the Batman titles before leaving them for a regular gig at Malibu Comics, being on the ground floor of their new Ultraverse line. There, he and writers Lynn Straczewski and Gerard Jones created the lead Ultraverse character Prime, introduced in 1993. Bray Fogel stayed on Prime for most of Malibu's run and even returned after the Ultraverse was bought out by Marvel. He returned to DC for one-shots and special issues throughout the remainder of the 90s, later illustrating both a limited series and a short-lived ongoing series for his and Grant's creation, Anarchy. In 2002, Bray Fogel became the regular penciler of the Spectre series, then starring Hal Jordan as the Ghostly Guardian. He stayed on the title until it ended with issue number 27, May 2003. He returned to Gotham with DC retroactive Batman, the 90s one-shot, in October 2011 before the New 52 began. Bray Fogel finished his time in Gotham in the not-so-distant future of the digital first series Batman Beyond Unlimited, which was ran in print from April 2012 to June 2013. In addition to DC work in his later years, Bray Fogel provided artwork for Archie's New Look and many independent publishers as well. His last work for DC was for the Trinity of Sin Phantom Stranger series, number 18 through 20, in 2014. In December of that year, Bray Fogle suffered a stroke that partially paralyzed the left side of his body, including his dominant drawing hand. Fans and professionals rallied around Bray Fogle, and through fundraising campaigns, a collected edition of his early work on Whisper was published to help his medical costs. DC also published Legends of the Dark Knight, nor Bray Fogle Volume 1 around this time, containing his earliest Batman work. Bray Fogle died of heart failure on September 24, 2018. He was eulogized by the comics press and fandom alike, remembered as an exciting artist with a style unique in the medium. He is greatly missed, but his body of work lives on, and a good chunk of that is tales featuring Batman. Brayfogle's take on the character has proven influential and very well remembered. He is often cited as the Batman artist of the late 80s and early 90s, arguably one of the character's most popular periods, thanks to the media push for the 1989 movie and its follow-ups but also due to the energetic and original art provided by the character's primary artistic steward of the time. So what do you th- – got anything to add on Norm Brayfogle, Ryan? Uh, he died on my birthday. Uh, oh, which, yeah. Which was a crappy way to spend my birthday last year. Um, he wasn't the first Batman artist I ever saw because my introduction to Batman in print was through like trades of 
uh, The Dark Knight Returns, Year One, The Killing Joke, and um, A Death in the Family. But when I started collecting floppies from the Eagle Grocery Store down the street, uh, my first issue that uh, that I had in hand was Detective 617, so one of his last issues of that, and and I was picking up the book from then. I collected the the rest, and then I I was with him. I was collecting Batman at the same time with the the Jim Aparo and Marv Wolfman. Yeah, he he was definitely my Batman artist for a time. Like when I was growing up and getting into this character, I, I recognized his style. When I close my eyes and I think of Batman, I I think of him or Jim Aparo. Like I mean, obviously, like the Aparo style that that sort of that that defined look that you see. It it feels like merchandise type of thing. It, it feels like that that sort of stock imagery. Um, but I also think of these images of, of Brayfogle, which are more stylized and and I picked up the the Legends of the Dark Knight trade paper or hardcover with Norm Brayfogle a couple years ago as soon as it came out and revisited some of those issues for the first time in in years actually sort of in preparation for this podcast it was just how we're talking about like two years ago it was great to see him and I and I noticed things about his style and we'll kind of get into this when when we cover the issue that we're going to talk about but there are things about his his style that I never really realized there are there are times when his his anatomy is kind of wonky. There are times when like you know the proportions get a little bit crazy, and and you can say that it's it's atmospheric or it's more stylized. And and I I, I can't help but think of like the issues that we just covered by Todd McFarlane. Mm-hmm. And I think there are times when Brayfogle goes extreme or exaggerated, and it's like he's he's doing something more for the energy, the effect, the, the kind of craziness. But what's different, like when when I look at his work and I look at Todd McFarlane on those early issues that we just talked about, is I never have a problem following the story when Bray Fogel drew it. He could take weird angles, he could take weird proportions, he could make these exaggerated leaps that just that don't make sense in any kind of physical reality. But the action is clear, the storytelling is easy to follow, it's not confusing. And that kind of separates him from some of the artists that, like, because I, I kind of think, like, why didn't he jump ship to Image? Why wasn't he one of the founders of Image? Was it just mm. because he was a DC and most of them were Marvel alums? Like, you know, like, what if he had gone over there, gone to Image instead of Malibu, something like that? Like, but I, I just think, like, his style, as opposed to McFarlane or, or Liefeld, and I do sometimes see some similarities between them, but it's, like, there's just a simple economy of storytelling that he he knows the basics, he knows the fundamentals, where sometimes they don't. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think the difference is Ray Fogel, he did know the fundamentals. He could draw it straight. Mm-hmm. He didn't – he could draw anything – straight without going to the extreme look that wasn't a crutch for him that was just his way of of selling the the moment of making it more impactful with your early image guys like mcfarlane and liefeld that was the crutch right you know they could you know they they couldn't draw something like two people talking in a room and make it look good they had to you know go for this really weird layout like i know uh Roy Thomas even mentioned when McFarlane started on Infinity Incorporated, and of course McFarlane was really young then, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that he would do these crazy, like, you know, like draw a telephone with like, you know, taking up the whole page with like jades in the top of the telephone, the one part of the, re- like the receiver and like, uh, you know, obsidians in the other one or something, you know, so I mean that type of weird layout, do all these fancy layouts to 
paste over the fact that he wasn't that really good of a competent artist at this point. But but Bray Fogle had the chops. He could draw competently, just normal. But he had this. He could he could uh, exaggerate and stretch things for dramatic storytelling effect. And I think I think that's the key difference. I think that you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Like of all of the artists, you know, writers and artists that we have talked about on this show, like Norm Brayfogle was one that when we were first conceiving of the show, he was at the top of my list. Like if we ever did an, an interview with a creator, um, you know, like for this podcast or, or for something else, like at a con or something like if we ever like actually had a sit down interview, like Brayfogle was the one that I wanted the most. And then when he had his stroke, I was like, ah, oh, gosh, I, I had no idea, like, if his, if his speech was impaired or anything like that, like, if that would cause some complications, so I kind of put it on the back burner, I was like, maybe we wait a year, couple of years, like, let make sure that he's fully recovered from that stroke, and, and kind of revisit the topic of, can we get him on the show or something, and then, yeah, obviously, when when he passes, like, well, that's, that's something that's never going to happen, so, I'm, right, I'm yeah. disappointed that, like, I never got a chance to meet him, never got anything, like, signed by him, but just to, to thank him for being my Batman artist when I first joined the books and and doing some of my all-time favorite Batman. I mean, my go-to signature Batman image is from the first comic that I ever I, I got, which was Batman or Detective 617. It's a double-page spread of Batman swinging down, kicking the roof off of Joker's car and kicking, yes. like, shattering like the glass and everything like that. It's just it's an amazing image and like that's that's with me when I sleep. Right. If I <laughs> If I could have gotten to just like you know thank him for putting that image out there and and something that it was has always stuck with me, I would have liked to do that. But yeah, you know it's kind of it's kind of ironic that uh, you know when I was a kid, like my favorite Batman artist that was drawing the books when I was younger was uh, Don Newton, mm-hmm. and uh, Don Newton died young as well. Uh, now Don Newton was older when he was working on Batman, and he died like shortly after leaving the Batman titles to go work on Infinity Incorporated. Oddly enough, uh, but I mean, I remember you know the, the Meanwhile column and the you know Denny, I mean uh, Dick Giordano's Meanwhile column, um, you know, talking about that Don Newton had passed, and and uh, I, that really hit me hard. There, you know, he was he was my Batman artist of that era, but then Norm Brayfogle was a Batman artist of the next era to me. You know, so he he is that. You know, there's plenty of other Batman artists I like, but the, I mean, there's just it was exciting. I was excited to get an issue of Batman, no matter what the story, no matter who the kit villain was, just to see what Norm Brayfogle did artistically in this issue. And as somebody coming up at that time that was wanting to be a comic book artist, uh, it was it was really cool to have. You know, I mean, he was an artistic hero, and uh, the but when I draw Batman, there's a little bit. I mean, I'm not a Norm Bray. I can't draw like Norm Brayfogle, but I think there's a little bit of a Norm Brayfogle Batman in my own personal Batman because he was such an influence. And and uh, yeah, it's 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 a real it's a real shame that he that uh, he died so young, of course, and and that he you know his last year or so he wasn't able to draw because of the stroke and everything. But it he's got such a huge body of work with the character that he was just seemed like he was tailor made for. I mean, he was just made to be a Batman artist and and he really got to do a ton of work on the character so at least we've got that you know as fans I mean you know and I I didn't know the guy personally I've heard I've never heard a bad word about him I heard he's just a 
was a really warm and uh, nice guy to his fans and everything. So uh, yeah, it's it. I'm really looking forward to going through and and talking about his work and celebrating his work because I know just about everybody is a fan of Norm Bray Fogle, and I'm it's it's it's. And I'm also glad that he's saving us from a lot of <laughs> comics that we're kind of eh about. <laughs> well, let's get into it then. Let's let's uh, let's do it. Detective Comics number five seventy nine was cover dated October nineteen eighty seven. It was on sale according to Mike's Amazing World uh, on July twenty eighth of nineteen eighty seven. On the cover, the sinister crime doctor makes an incision on the unconscious patient lying in front of him. In the background, the Batman smashes through the window not alerting the very focused doctor in the foreground. And, of course, this is drawn by Norm frickin' Breyfogle. So, Ryan, this is our first of many Batman covers by Breyfogle. What do you think? I really dig it. I mean, it's a, it's a good cover. You nailed it right in just describing as the sinister crime doctor, because even though he's covered up by the whole operating scrubs, he's got the gown, he's got the face mask on, and the hat to everything to keep him sterile, just, like, the eyebrows and the intensity of the eyes and everything, you can tell, like, whatever this operation, <laughs> this is not, like, a random appendectomy. <laughs> like, this, is, this right. is something going on. But the Batman, like, you know, crashing in through the, the side, like, you know, coming in at this almost horizontal angle, like, I can't help. I was looking at this last night, and for some reason, I thought of the movie The Breakfast Club. And this is the weirdest connection, the weirdest okay. thing. But do you remember in The Breakfast Club when all five of the kids like sneak out and everything, and they're trying to get back to the library, and they see that like the principal is like heading back and everything like that, and there's like this musical montage of them running and trying to like take like different tactics and trying to get there before him, and there's this one shot of them rounding the corner all together like at a dead run, seeing him and like trying to like stop on a dime and they're like sliding as mm-hmm. they, like and trying to like reverse course and like run back. For some reason, I see I, I look at this cover and i have that image in my head of him like crashing through at this like horizontal thing and going like oops this isn't a warehouse full of guns this is a hospital i've got to turn around <laughs> and get back it's completely the wrong thing to get from this but i see this image and i think of that so that's awesome yeah batman just breaks in on a uh, like a legit operation yeah <laughs> is this a drug deal no this is a heart transplant it's like oh carry on then i'll, I'll leave the way i came in <laughs> <laughs> Every time I see Batman crash through a, a a window, now I can't. Ever since the episode of of uh, Batman the Animated Series, the uh, old wounds episode, where Batman and it's a lot shows how Bruce and Dick break up, you know, and 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 uh, Batman and Robin crash through a skylight, and and Joker's like, nice entrance. Either you either you don't know how to use a door, or you just like picking glass out of your shorts, you know. Just, <laughs> I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love this cover. It's uh, you know, this is not not quite the Batman we're used to. Um, it's like we said, it's got elements. It's it's a little bit of that traditional style, a little bit of Alan Davis type style with a little bit of the McFarlane. So I mean, just coming from what we've had on Detective Comics, this is a nice happy medium between mm-hmm. the two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, like you said, the crime doctor looks very, very, very sinister. You know, this guy's up to no good. I mean, he's got those patented evil Bray Fogle eyebrows that he's yep. so great at. They have a lot of fun with. So uh, we also get a new detective logo. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not bad. I don't I don't dislike it. Uh, the bad around the comics is kind of interesting. I'm not sure I like it better than the classic detective logo, but it's even got the whole, you know, the top part of the the comic has got a little frame around the detective. It's like there's a little banner, like Mm kind of more like a golden age type look. So that's kind of interesting. But uh, 
Yeah, so nice cover. We're off to a great start. Yep. Okay. The Crime Doctor's Crimson Clinic was written by Mike W. Barr with artist Norm Brayfogle. Letterer was John Costanza. Colorist was Juliana Furtier. I will go with that. Editor was Denny O'Neill. In a rundown apartment, Patty Reams begs her husband not to go. Shula Reams regrettably believes he has to go ahead with his plans despite the pleas of his wife and his daughter Polly. He thinks it's the only way to secure a future for his family since he can't find a job due to his criminal past. Two large men dressed in orderly uniforms show up at their door and take Reams to his appointment with the doctor. That physician is one Dr. Bradford Thorne, a.k.a. the crime doctor, who at this moment is meeting on the outskirts of town with another patient, the very thinly veiled Mr. Janice. Thorne assures Janice he is ready to move forward with the operation Janice has requested. Janice flips a coin and scarred side landing up gives Thorne the go-ahead to proceed. Back in the city, some of Thorne's men attempt to rob the Gotham Plasma Supply, but their conversation on spooks and vampires is interrupted by Batman and Robin. The dynamic duo unnerves the skittish crooks and makes short work of them. Batman interrogates one of the gang and a short criminal named Herky. Batman notes Herky has a shoulder bullet injury sustained during another botched blood heist days earlier. The Dark Knight asks for the location of the crime doctor, but Herky won't squeal. Later at Gotham Police HQ, discussion with Commissioner Gordon turns to Herky's usual employer, wanted crime boss Big Mole McAllister, rumored to be skipping town and also known to be suffering from severe heart disease. Batman believes McAllister is about to go under the crime doctor's knife before he makes his long journey. He convinces Gordon to let him and Robin handle the investigation discreetly so McAllister won't go further underground. Swinging through the city, a disgusted Batman tells Robin that he wants to capture the immoral doctor very badly. Robin points out that maybe this has something to do with Batman's own father being a doctor, but the Dark Knight, of course, denies it. At the Hidden Clinic, Shula Reams undergoes a thorough examination by Dr. Thorne. Thorne assures Reams that once the operation is complete, Reams' family will receive the hundred grand they are owed. Reams momentarily doubts giving up his life for his family, but reassures himself it's the only way for them to make it. Elsewhere in the clinic, in the room of Big Mo McAllister, the large gang lord uses his hired muscle to threaten Thorne into cooperating more quickly. The goons are disarmed by the large but very swift Nurse Wrench. Thorne then points out his highly skilled hands and how they must not be made to tremble in fear during the delicate heart transplant. In her crime alley clinic, Leslie Tompkins examines Robin's healing gunshot wound while Batman helps himself to her clinic computer looking for rare blood donors. Batman's suspicions are proven correct when he finds that McAllister's blood type is extremely rare. The only matching donor on file with a criminal record is one Shuler Reams. Leslie and Batman once again get into their usual argument about his methods and how they are ultimately necessary, but they both wish they weren't, as seen in almost every issue of this run. The heroes arrive at the Reams' apartment looking for Shuler. Patty tells Batman of the men that took him away, but little Polly, afraid of her father, fights back and slings mud from the floor at Robin. Batman notes the mud contains pine needles, pointing to the Cone Hills region south of Gotham. Confused, Patty asks if Batman plans to help her husband. The Dark Knight admits if he has broken the law again, then he can help him. But if not, he'll do what he can. In the bushes outside of the hidden clinic, Batman and Robin discuss the Dark Knight detective's deductive reasoning. Finding that no buildings were using more electricity than normal, they quizzed the local gas stations and found where large amounts of kerosene were being bought, no doubt used to power a generator. Batman tells Gordon of their location, and he and Robin head in. Robin finds the generator in a building out back and sets about wrecking it. Inside, having taken care of the needs of Mr. Janice, Thorne is ready to begin McAllister's operation. 
Suddenly, the lights go out, and the doctor sends Nurse Wrench to check it out. In McAllister's room, anesthetic gas begins to flow through the ventilation shafts. Thorne's men find Batman is their culprit, but the Cape Crusader is ready for them, and the gas, wearing his handy gas mask. Out back, Nurse Wrench breaks in on Robin, wrecking the generator, and nearly strangles the Boy Wonder before he manages to slam her into the generator, taking both of them out of the picture. Inside, both McAllister and Reams wander the hallways. Big Mo turns to find the fearsome form of the Dark Knight and has a big old heart attack. Batman confirms his death, but isn't too broken up about it. He gets a kick to the face, which knocks off his gas mask, and then a slice from the crime doctor's drug-coated scalpel. Woozy from breathing in the gas, Batman is down when suddenly the crime doctor is whacked in the skull by a fire extinguisher, swung by none other than Shuler Reams. Thorne reaches for his gun, and Reams is forced to smash his precious hands with the extinguisher. Batman thanks Reams, who says he couldn't watch Thorne commit murder, even if it meant going back to prison. He wonders what his family will do now as Gordon and Robin burst in. Batman tells Gordon that Reams worked with him and helped him find Thorne's clinic. Reams is further surprised when Batman informs him of his new job working for the Wayne Foundation. The triumphant heroes walk off, leaving Thorne and his shattered hands behind. Later, Schuler is reunited with his loving family as a dynamic duo swing off into the night. So what do you think of this one, Ryan? Well, they can't all be as good as did Robin die tonight. <laughs> uh, what did you really think of this? <laughs> uh, it's nice to really love uh, an issue of Detective Comics again. <laughs> We've been on a little bit of a hiatus. Um, yes. I, I actually I will start with my one negative because I have a lot of high I have a lot of praise for this one. So I'll actually start off with my one low. And you actually you alluded to it in your synopsis. It's the interaction with um, Batman and Leslie Tompkins. Yeah, I get the feeling that Barr really liked Leslie Tompkins because he's used her now for what is the seven, six or seven issues in a row. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, is it tedious at this point? It's just shut the hell up. We get it. <laughs> You disagree with his methods and everything, but the thing is, like, I I think Barr likes writing this relationship, but it's not good because it makes her look nagging and pestering and kind of like because we want to see Batman do his Batman stuff. So her attitude is coming off as just annoying and slightly bitchy. But the thing is, it doesn't make Batman look good either. When when she walks in and he's sitting there like like using her computer to look up like medical records and everything, like. If Batman sneaks into a a records vault or you know the uh, the evidence locker or something like, like police headquarters and he's doing around and he's digging up information to help him crack a case, he is breaking the law. He is going outside the the laws and and the order to do that investigation. He's not implicating anybody else in his actions. He's kind of sort of dragging her along with this. He's at least like morally compromising her, like. If she was found to be helping him, like, revealing classified medical information to him, like, she would lose her medical license. Now, mm-hmm. she could argue that, hey, this guy who's, like, 230 pounds of muscle dressed in a bat costume walked into my clinic and started looking at my computer. What was I going to do to stop him? She could make that defense. But it's still, it's, these are obvious, and for some reason, it works when Gordon works with Batman, but it doesn't work when Leslie does. I don't understand necessarily why. But it's one of those things where we keep saying there's a suspension of disbelief that allows mm-hmm. these things to work. 
when you keep hanging a lamp on the on these things, you make it hard to disbelieve it. You make it hard to just kind of like go along with the fun of it. And I think Leslie, every time we see her, she's making it harder and harder to go along with the fact that Batman is doing his things and he's just a a reckless, unlikable person. So yeah. I don't like this relationship. I want her to go away and, and Barr needs to stop beating this dead horse. Yeah, he, he's overused her. I mean, it makes sense in this story with the whole doctor angle mm-hmm. that she's involved, but it's like if she could have just, you know, even if he said she's like, I'm not even going to say it this time or something like that, you know, right. she just like threw her hands up. It's like, I was going to start on you, but I'm not even going to bother, you know, and just walked off or something, you know, that even if they just alluded to it like that. But the fact that they actually get into it again, it's just like, oh, uh, I mean, I do like the fact that Robin's like, you know, well, you two are a lot alike, you know, and Batman's like, well, we're both too stubborn to admit it, you know. So, I mean, I thought that was that was a nice touch. But, I mean, it's like, ah, uh, just quit beating that, just quit beating that horse, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, getting into the, the positive stuff, uh, I really love the splash page. Yeah. of this story. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's I think I even like it better than the cover, actually. Uh, it's it's very golden age. It's a large symbolic figure of the crime doctor, and he's throwing a scalpel at Batman. It was pushing Schuler out of the way, and Robin's flipping out of its path. It's it's really it's really striking, really strong. That was a staple of Barr's run. He always had his story, and and I think it was an homage to those earlier era, those bygone eras of comics, where he just he had these opening splash pages on all of his books. Oh yeah, it's a very golden age. It's very Dick Sprang, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, Jerry Robinson, Batman, Bob Kane. It's very, very much that. Yeah, and it's, it's great. I mean, this is, this is Mike Barr back to. Let's forget Batman Year Two. This is, <laughs> this is, this is Batman the way I like Mike Barr's take on Batman like this. You know, right, right. Um, uh, opening the story with the Reams, I think, is a nice touch. It gets us to care about the family, mm. even if Schuler is pretty dense. I mean, I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean he, you know, he comes through at the end, so... He... Yeah, yeah, he does, but it's like, uh, we'll get into that, but it's like, dude, I mean, there's got to be some better way, you know, they're not going to be better off with you dead, I mean, come on, you know, but right. but uh, I do like that the old, the orderlies have the old uniforms on, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure nobody was wearing these in 1987, <laughs> but it's a nice visual shorthand, and you associate that with Asylum, so there's kind of this seedy right. part to it, yeah. How many people is the crime doctor employing to run his shady little operation? Like, he's got like a small army of orderlies and nurses and everything. And I get it. If you're performing major surgery, you can't do that by yourself. You need a staff. But still, like this is it's like six or seven people at minimum, like working with you to do the, to commit these crimes and and do these like that's that's a lot of people like either with like semi-medical training to be kind of working on these on these criminal procedures but well look at it this way they'd probably get free uh, <laughs> uh medical insurance you know i mean it's they, they got a doctor right they don't have to pay and you know so there you go um of course we see mr janice uh that is of course clearly two-faced we even see the sleeve of his ugly the ugly side of his coat mm. uh the plaid side but uh now, me personally, this is another example of sloppy editorial coordination on Denny's part. I hate to pick on Denny O'Neill. Obviously, we've said before, legendary writer, legendary editor. This just isn't his period right here. Uh, Two-Face just appeared in the last two issues of Batman. 
give us a break, Denny. You know, like we let Harvey go away, so we want him to come back. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Spoilers. Two Face is the villain of the next two issues of Detective after this, and. Am I right? I'm thinking back to when we did on our very first episode when we covered Batman 400. Two Face wasn't among the rogues that were assembled in that one, and you said it was because Two Face just had a story arc in the issues right before that. Right. Yeah. This is like one year later. He's been the villain of like three different story arcs across these two books. It's like settle down. (laughs) Yeah, give somebody else a try. Well, and apparently in that article that Scott X sent us from uh, with that interview with Max Allen Collins, he talked about the storyline he was going to come back for was going to be a two-faced yeah, storyline. Yes. <laughs> it's like, good gravy, people. That's like, how much can you squeeze out of that character in a short amount of time, you know? Right, right. Uh, Speaking of uh, a villain that didn't get seen a whole lot was the crime doctor. He had only made this version anyway. It only made two prior appearances in Detective Comics number 494 and 495, September and October of 1980, which I actually had those as a kid. Uh, There had been an earlier crime doctor, although he was never quite called the crime doctor. He was instead just known as Dr. Matthew Thorne. And he appeared only twice in Detective Comics number 77, July 1943, and in the very next issue of Batman, issue number 18, August, September of that year. And he did make the cover of Detective number 77, and he was a big symbolic doctor figure there with Batman and Robin, you know, coming at him and stuff in, on that cover as well. So I thought that was that was kind of interesting. No, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. Are either of these doctors thorn canonically connected to rupert thorn in the comics not in the comics we okay. will get to that yeah, when we'll they're get connected. To that, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah i just i couldn't remember if they if they were or not or if either one of them had that past connection they should have but right, they didn't right. no. <laughs> um getting into bray fogel's art again i i really dig his robin he he's definitely going for a uh, alan davis robin Mm-hmm. Like there's, uh, I I definitely see like the through line. Like if if we hadn't had year two in between, if he was picking up right after Alan Davis, that is not a jarring transition. He definitely gets the young, sort of Peter Pan, very sprite like skinny legs Robin with the big smiles. You know, kind of clean. You know, it, it's it's really working. Like especially in this the scene where they're attacking at the blood bank and everything, and and then come down that top panel. It's like, oh no, it's Batman and Robin. I'd have preferred vampires. <laughs> it's, it's like a great <laughs> Batman, Batman swinging down, Batman in the shadows, and Robin behind the moon or in front of the moon with his his big smile. Yeah, I love that panel. I think I used that when when Nor Brave Vogel passed away. I think that became my bat, my avatar on Facebook there yeah, for a yeah. while. I've a had profile that. picture. I've had that before too. That's a that's a great image. They're coming through the bars, and it looks like Brave Vogel even put something in between the bars, like that they expanded yes. the bars with the swing yeah, in. Yeah, it actually he shows the mechanics of how they bent those bars in order so they could get in there. Yeah. Yeah, that, I thought that was cool. Yeah, the whole blood bank robbery is great. That this is how you lay out superhero action in a comic, people. Right here. Right. Um, yeah, it's and, dynamic. You don't you don't get a whole lot of like really good. Like, it's not like poster images of Batman, which is what a lot of like artists would do. But it's it's clean. You know exactly what action is being conveyed. It's fast. It works. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of camera angles changing, and there's not a whole lot of over overly fancy like you know messing with the panels. But like one when Batman's kicking this guy in the face, his foot's like coming outside of the panel mm-hmm. on uh, on page six. I think that that's just little things like that. You know, he's not he's not getting artsy fartsy to that's going to throw off the flow of the story, but he's just he's adding that dynamic to it. 
Uh, now, the you know this is uh, another case where Barr's been really good about introducing these characters that populate Gotham, these side characters like Herky. Mm. You get the idea that Herky could show up again, and Batman's run into him before. Um, is he supposed to be like an actual little person, or is he just short? I, I couldn't <laughs> quite tell from the artwork. <laughs> just you know, it's it, what did you think? I mean, Batman, like, clearly lifts him up off the ground, like, by the back of his shirt, and his feet are, like, at Batman's waist, and in the bottom panel there, the guy is shorter than Robin. Yeah. So, God, it, I mean, that could just be, God, gosh, it's tough. I, I don't know if he's meant to be an actual, like, little person, like a dwarf, but he's mm-hmm. definitely short, and, like, we're, like, looking at, like, three and a half, four feet tall the most. Um, yeah. I thought it was in, interesting. In the, I, panel, in the panel where Batman is looking at, is like lifting him up proportion wise, he looks like a dwarf. Yeah. Um, but in did. the bottom panel when, when he's standing next to Robin, I'm not so much I he he just kind of looks like he's just shorter of stature. But Yeah, it's 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 kinda of, it's a little hard to tell, but I mean that's fine. It it I did like the line when you get the more ruthless Batman that Barr is famous for <laughs> when he's like, Suit yourself, Herky, but I'll find him and when I do, he'll think you sold him out anyway. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, he's going to get you, you know, so you might as well go ahead and tell me because he's going to come after you, you know. It's like, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get more of that from Batman later in this uh, story. Now, I did want to point out, we didn't really bring this up in the Batman's discussion of the Batman issue by Collins and Cochran, but let's compare the scenes in Gordon's office, shall we? Mm-hmm. Here in this detective, as drawn by Norm Brayfogle, Batman is in the shadows. Yep. His face is hidden in the first two panels. He's standing up the whole time. Now, Robin is lounging at Gordon's desk, <laughs> and I like the bit where Robin starts to hand him the phone, but Batman and Batman puts it down. I'm not sure if this was Barr's script or not in the script, but either way, the acting is great, and it adds a lot of depth to the interpersonal relationship of the characters. And in the other one, Batman's lounging on the couch again. Right, right. <laughs> he's got his leg in Batman. He's got his legs crossed. He's sitting down. This one, this one feels right to me of the two. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it just like and and maybe this is the era that I grew up with. So this kind of like seems the thing. If you've got Batman and Robin talking to Gordon in his office, Batman is standing off in the corner. He's still keeping himself dark and shadowy, even when it's just like, you know, a a private conversation with Gordon. He's still a little bit disconnected from the action. Robin looks great because Robin's just sitting there with his feet up on the desk, reading a file. Yeah, this, in terms of just like the the arrangement, the body language, this one feels more appropriate for the characters and their relationships. So Yeah, definitely. And then the bottom panel on that same page, on page 8, I love when Batman and Robin are swinging away, but this is one where I'm like, Ah, uh, Norm, couldn't you just like change your angle a little bit because it's a great image of Batman swinging, except his right arm is blocking his head and his face. Like mm. all, all we see is one of his scalped ears and his chin. And it's yeah, like, this would be a great shot if you could actually like see Batman's head and his face. Like that's that's kind of an important detail. And it's, it's the one thing where it's like, ah, uh, take a one more pass at this one. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It is. It's a. It's a nice shot, but yeah, it is kind of marred by him covering up his face. Good point. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like the fact that Batman is really, you know, determined to get Thorn, and because he's besmirching his father's profession. I, I, you know, Robin points that out, and of course, Batman denies it. But that's another case where Bar, you know, Bar gets the character, and and that does add some some weight to what the crime doctor's doing. You know, I mean, because. I mean, the crime doctor's no Joker. He's no Two Face, but 
but that that's an interesting angle to go with him there, you know, that I, I don't think maybe necessarily some writers would pick up on. So I thought I thought that was cool. Um, All right. One of my favorite panels, and it might be my favorite panel in the whole book, uh, jumping ahead to page 14, this is when Batman and Robin go to the Reams' house. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a knock at the door, the little girl opens it, and Batman is standing in the doorway. Mm-hmm. Now, at first glance, like if I hadn't been thinking, I was like, wow, what a lazy image of Batman. It's like four lines just to get like the silhouette or something like that. It's not fully colored in. You just get like the the chin and the mouth and everything like that, and like the points and everything like the like the size is all wrong and the angle and everything. It's just like ah, I don't like that. But then like the more I think about it, it's like no, it works perfectly because it's a little girl's POV. So we're coming mm-hmm. at it from this harsh lower angle, and she's looking at freaking Batman standing in her doorway asking to see her father, like, oh, that's terrifying. He's just a wall of shadow and darkness with this stern look. Like, he's not supposed to look human. He's supposed to look a little bit inhuman, a little bit monstrous. And this panel captures that. So it, this is an, this is one of those examples where Brayfogel is sacrificing the the basic physics, the basic anatomy, the basic structure in order to get something that is atmospherically and moodly accurate to the moment so mm-hmm. yeah that is a fantastic panel i was going to point that out too it's it, it i remember like after seeing that drawing a lot of upshots of batman mm-hmm. i mean uh, you know drawing the underside of his chin <laughs> but and 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 bray fogel will often when batman's fully draped in his cape his shoulders become like six feet wide <laughs> yeah. you know you know, I mean, I'm sure other artists did that before, but Brayfogel is the one that really started to do a lot with that and and used it as kind of a you know as a go-to image of Batman. And I mean, that's something that carried over in the animated series, and and so I, I think that I mean that's an influential little technique with Batman. Honestly, I don't I don't really remember a whole lot of artists doing that before, where he's just completely like the capes like one solid mass. That he's just like draped in. You don't even see like any of his chest. He's just like black, you know. And so, I mean, it's it's uh, that that whole confrontation with the with the family and the little girl throws mud at the at Robin's face. The look on Robin's face when he gets the mud on him, which at first you're like, what did she just throw at him? Yeah. <laughs> I will say one thing though. Uh, uh, Patty Reams must be a horrible housekeeper because she has not mopped the floor. You know, it's like. <laughs> Come on, lady. You know, it's, I'm sure you can. I know you guys are poor, but can you at least like clean the floor up? I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> Look at your daughter. Yeah, exactly. That's not safe, and she's running around barefoot. I think so. It's like, yeah, it's like, what's she picking up off that? Uh, just a few pages back, when we see, uh, I don't want to get back in the whole Leslie thing again. We already beat that one. Uh, but uh, when when we see up close the uh, shot of uh, Doctor Thorne, the crime doctor, on page eleven, there's a little bit of Vincent Price in his face. I think he mm-hmm. he remind he reminds me a little bit of Vincent Price, and I, I can. You know, if you're going to cast somebody as an evil doctor, you know, why not? Doctor, sure. the abominable Dr. Thorne, you know, <laughs> why, why not? You know, so that was cool. And then we get Nurse Wrench, which, of course, is a, a little nod to Nurse Ratchet from One right. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So right. I thought that was and I like I like the way that Bray Fogle drew her. She takes those guys out like she's this large woman, but she like ducks under the bed, pulls them out from the other side, like grabs her feet and pulls. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great moment. 
Yeah, she kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, that character the, the in the Englehart Rogers run when Hugo Strange had his clinic and yeah, that nurse that is later enforcer. turned into a, yeah the enforcer. She's turned into a, a monster at, toward the end of that story. It kind of kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Yeah, and I love like when her when she because after we've seen what she can do to these gangsters when she confronts Robin in the generator room towards the end, like it's a serious threat. You know, she gets behind and she's like choking him, and and at the bottom of page nineteen, like he's really in trouble. Like you really believe the danger there. Like she's just physically dominating him pushing him down but he gets that one foot up and he gets that leverage and the top of page 20 when he just kicks back and her head just slams into the generator it's like oh that's gonna need stitches really quickly otherwise she's gonna, that's gonna be a bad head injury she might bleed out yeah, yeah i mean it, yeah that, that was pretty rough i i the the fight scenes are really you know just really again really well done you feel the impact of everything in, yeah. in this one and, and but but you know Barr and you know again remembers he's writing detective comics uh and has Batman actually detect of course you know a lot's been made now of if Batman finds mud or leaves or pine needles or something he can trace it to the location but I'm not too sure that had been done to death at this point so that was kind of a that was kind of interesting and the fact that he went around and uh you know he didn't find any place that had used up a lot of power which he knew Thorne would have to for these operations but he did find, you know, gas stations that had sold a lot of kerosene for a generator. Although they misspelled kerosene in this comic book, <laughs> I noticed. So, but that's uh, good detective work. That's that's him using his brain, and I like that. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. And and I, I will say one thing: Why doesn't Batman put gas in ventilation shafts more often? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean that that's a good like it's a good bit that cuts down on all the goons you gotta mow through. You know, so <laughs> he likes the challenge. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, the panel of McAllister stumbling onto Batman, that's another, that's a great scare moment. Right, and another yeah. image of just like the, the silhouette of Batman where you just, you see the gas mask, but everything else is just the, the shadow, like no sign of the chest, no sign of like the detail. It's just, he's like a void in the wall where it's, it's really well done. That's another case too where Adrian Roy does a great job with the colors because it's got this yellow background. Of course, it's got all the the, you know, surprise lines like bursting from around McAllister's face, but she's colored his face is pale, mm-hmm. like the, the from the light, like he's like you know just sweaty and scared, and and of course he's having a massive heart attack and and dies. Uh, but uh, which Batman isn't uh, too choked up about because he says, "Dead. I can't say I planned this, but I won't say I'm sorry." <laughs> this is Batman, the Batman who used a, a guy as a human shield. Uh, <laughs> who, who threatened prison rape against profile? Uh, this is that same Batman. So <laughs> I won't kill you. I'm just going to scare you, and your heart will kill you. <laughs> I didn't kill him. His heart killed him. Yeah, so, <laughs> yep. exactly. So. Then there's a fight with the crime doctor. I'm not sure the drug coated scalpel was really necessary, but with the gas. But right, right. Hey, you know, right, it gives him gives him more of a gimmick. You know, makes him more of a Batman villain. I do. Unfortunately, as much as we love the coloring earlier, there's a little the I don't know if you're if in the collected edition that this correct this has been corrected, but on uh, page twenty two where we re- it's revealed that Schuler is who hit Thorn with the extinguisher. His hair is colored the same color as the background, which is green. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at that on the floppy too. Yeah, yeah, which <laughs> which, which makes it look like the Joker just say Batman or something. <laughs> yeah, the the backgrounds really kind of disappear on both of these pages, and just they're just like random like background colors like red, yellow, pink, green. It's just whatever to, to kind of distinguish it. But I mean, it, 
the background color doesn't, I don't have a problem with that because at this point we know where we are. We've established it. The action is busy. The backgrounds aren't, aren't important. So it's, that's good. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why is Reams's hair green in that one? That's a mistake. So. Well, you know, it, that doesn't, you know, we, we talked about that in uh, some of the Cockrum issues of the other Collins comics that, that the backgrounds were sparse and, and that, you know, there weren't, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a background detail, but, the problem there was that there was a lot of wide expanse of of empty background, and here we don't have that. I mean, the characters are filling up the panels pretty well, so I don't I don't mind that when they you know the background's all one solid color. You don't get a lot of the detail of the room or anything. That doesn't bother me when there's a lot of action and the the figures are taking up a good portion of the the panel. You know, to me that's not. That's just making the story, like you said. That's just doing clear storytelling. You don't want to over clutter it and make it hard to hard to read. So, you know, I just checked the uh, the collected edition that hardcover. His hair is still green in that one. Really, it's like, it's like the colors are all enriched, like they've been like digitally like tweaked and everything, but the colors aren't changing. Yep, his hair is still miscolored in that panel. Wow, like, you think they would have fixed that, yeah, especially with that price tag, right? That? <laughs> now, I did think that you know. They pointed out how important, like, do you really want these hands to be nervous? And then he crushes them with a fire extinguisher. It's like, ooh, that was a nice poetic touch. I thought that was a really cool, uh, a nice cool ending to to Crime Doctor. Mm -hmm. Now, consider this. In the last story that Bray Fogle drew, Batman had to take the penguin in because he had hired ex-cons at his legitimate business and he was on probation. Schuler is probably on probation, too, and is mixing with wanted and active criminals, but Batman gets him off the hook by lying to Gordon. <laughs> now, sure, Batman pleaded Penguin's case to the parole board, but this Batman may have just let him walk. Barr's Batman just might have been like, I didn't ever saw this, and walked out, you know, or something. <laughs> yeah, definitely a difference between... Um... A Mac story and a bar story, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. You know, I, I I don't know which one is. I mean, I like that Batman like takes it. You know, uh, I, I like the compassionate Batman here that because he, you know he the guy saved his life, so he's going to do him a solid. You know, I I like that. You know, Batman's not a cop. He, if he was a cop, he would have been a cop. You know, right. so he's he's like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I, he's not bound by those rules that way. So I I like that. I thought yeah. that was cool. I did too. Although. I th- although I do think at some point somebody would catch on to Bruce, you know, Batman giving away Bruce Wayne's jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's somebody in the HR department at Wayne Enterprises that's like, seriously, where do all these where do all these ex cons keep coming from? <laughs> it's like that animated series again. Back to the animated series Old Wounds, where yeah. Bruce gives a job to that guy that you know he came in, Batman came in and roughed up in front of his family, which is kind of reminds me of this situation here. In, the, in this issue. Speaking of which, uh, as you were pointing out earlier, Barr would revisit the crime doctor in the Batman the Animated Series episode Paging the Crime Doctor. He co-wrote the story on that episode, which features Matthew Thorne. Uh, that's the name of the Golden Age Doctor, as you recall, we mentioned. And he makes him the brother of mob boss Rupert Thorne. And Leslie also plays a large part in this episode, and it's because he needs assistance with another surgeon to help do a heart operation on Rupert Thorne. So they kidnapped Leslie in that episode. Now, unfortunately, Barr did not have a happy experience with uh, BTAS, feeling he wasn't allowed to rework the episode himself, 
Other hands, including former DC Comics writer Martin Pascoe, wrote the screenplay based on it. Also, director Frank Parr, who directed the episode, mentioned that it was called The Geezer Show among the staff in Cinefantastique magazine shortly after it aired. Plus, there's the whole Phantasm thing we discussed last time. So, yeah, Mike W. Barr didn't have a good experience with Batman Animated Series, unfortunately. And I'm sorry to hear that because Paging the Crime Doctor is one of my favorite episodes of the series. Yeah, it's a good I, one. Yeah, I, I love that series for not having a lot of fantastical ideas, for not having like the big rogues and everything. It's just Thorn and his goons, um, and Batman is really just his only real like handicap is just like he gets almost shot in the head with a, a surgical laser, and he's yeah. kind of, like dealing with like concussion syndrome throughout the thing. That's really the only thing that kind of like is hindering him, but it's a serious you know liability for him throughout the thing. Um, I love the way Leslie Tompkins is used in that one. There's a reason for her being there. You know, she does have to put herself in this com- ethically compromised position where she helps this disgraced former doctor perform surgery. And then after it, it's like Thorne, like Rupert Thorne is like after the surgery, you know, kill her, <laughs> like get yeah. rid of her. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's a serious thing. And, and that's, you know, Matthew Thorne, that's what kind of like snaps him and he has to to save her and like turn against his brother and do that. So it's, it's just a great little setup. I really like it. It has one of my favorite endings of the whole series, which is when Bruce Wayne goes to visit Matthew Thorne in jail. Uh, and he's like, what do you want? Some kind of like medical favor, like under a seedy thing. Cause that's what he's used to. And Bruce is like, no, can you tell me about my father? Because mm-hmm. they were partners. They worked together. Like the three of them, Leslie and Matthew Thorne and, and Thomas Wayne. And mm-hmm. it's just like this heartbreaking moment where it's just a kid. He's like, tell me a story about my dad. Because <laughs> it's, it's been 20 years and I haven't had a conversation with him. You knew him in his prime. Like, it's just it's this heartbreaking thing. Just think about it. I, I almost get misty-eyed just thinking about that moment. It's it's so good. So I love that episode. It's I wish you know Bart had a better experience with it, but... Yeah, I like that one. I like this. I like it better than this issue, but this issue was still a lot of fun. Yeah, that's it is a good one. That's one of those, you know, the, when the animated series they had so many episodes, they took their time and yeah, they did plenty of Joker stories and Penguin and Riddler and Two Face, but they did those those human interest gangster stories, you know, that they that they wouldn't you wouldn't see on a TV show now. There's no TV show, no animated TV show. That would take those the time to do a show like uh, stories like that now, mm-hmm. which is a shame. And uh, yeah, it, it's a really heart wrenching one. I watched it again before before we did this, uh, just to refresh my memory on it. it. It's it's one of the good ones. Batman does get beat up a lot in that one because he's suffering from the concussion. It's like he doesn't mow through the guys like he normally does. In that right. <laughs> right. This one orderly gives him a hard time for like I think fifteen minutes. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, to me, this story, though, this comic story, this is the antithesis of the Batman issue for me. I mean, it's well-paced writing. It's got snappy dialogue. It rings true the whole time. The art's exciting. It's stimulating. We got good bar back, and Bray Fogle's on his way to being one of the greats on the character with no shortage of good artists, but Bray Fogle is at the top of Batman Mountain. You know, he's... he's if he's not on the Mount Rushmore Batman artist, he's right below it, and he probably is on there, honestly. So, you know, according to... According to your list, he's at least in the top five to ten Batman artists who, and the characters probably had pound for pound more great artists than any other comic book character. So I, I think we're off to a, a great start here. Agreed, agreed. Um, sadly, we're going to have to take a break from Norm Bray Focal in the next month because for the next two <laughs> issues of Detective Comics, as we mentioned, that, that Two Face story, we have a fill in artist. 
Um, so even though this is Brayfogle's first issue of Detective, he's going to take a back seat for a few issues, and then he'll be back in force uh, right in time for Millennium. Yay! Yay! Um, <laughs> but yeah, the next episode we'll talk about Detective 580, which is a two-faced story, uh, still by Mike Barr. Uh, we'll also talk about Batman 413, which is a fill-in uh, written by Joe Duffy with art by Kieran Dwyer. Um, so that'll be a fun little, you know, one-off. And then after that, once we get beyond that one, then we're getting into the Jim Starlin, Jim Aparo run. So, yep. yeah, I feel like, uh, we've, we've turned a corner in this series and we're, uh, we're getting into some stuff that's, uh, gonna be more fun to talk about. Uh, I'm yep. not, not saying like... Hate our pennant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's the thing. Uh, I'm not saying like every issue, every story is gonna be great, but, um, I'm definitely looking forward to where we go from here, so... Yeah. Me too. Me too. All right, folks, that'll be it for this episode, but we will see you again next week. Bye. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Sing my comeback song. Your love for me. She said she'd never.